As always, we begin a Buddhist practice or a teaching session by recalling going for refuge to the three jewels. This is one of the um, cornerstones of Buddhist practice is shifting our orientation for what types of protection and shelter that we can have. Uh, shifting our orientation away from relying entirely on material supports like our money and our home and our government um, towards shifting our orientation towards spiritual cultivation and personal development as uh, our true source of shelter and protection. The things like uh, career and money do provide important forms of shelter. But, you know, shelter refuge means shelter, protection, um, what can keep us safe when we're in danger. And so, of course, having a career and money and a home is all, are all valuable forms of refuge. Uh, however, from the Buddhist point of view, they are fallible because money can't always protect us. Our home can you know, be burned down in a forest fire, at least out where I live, that's uh, a big danger. Um, we've seen our neighbor's houses burned down and you know, a forest fire starts at six o'clock and by seven o'clock, the neighbor's houses have burned down. If they were in town, they wouldn't even have a chance to get back there. So that source of shelter is fallible. It can be taken away. But the, the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha are considered infallible because the more energy we put into them, the greater our capacity for spiritual growth is. And by definition, our spiritual growth is about our evolutionary progress beyond just our particular lifetime. Uh, spiritual uh, spiritual teachings are about how do we how do we grow so that our future lives, our rebirths, will be as good or better than this one. We're very fortunate to have uh, leisure and fortune to be able to come to a Dharma center on a Thursday evening. Um, we are we are for the most part well educated and literate. We have access to food and medicine. Um, that's not the case for a lot of people alive in the world today. A lot of people are living in war zones or they just don't have access to enough basic resources. They're struggling just to survive. So, the, so we're very privileged to have the, the leisure and the fortune, the time and the resources to be able to come to a Dharma center and turn our minds towards something uh, altruistic that is um, benefiting others as well as ourselves. So. We go for refuge in the Buddha by um, opening our minds to the possibility that consciousness can be perfected and that we are not stuck in a state of suffering, that our minds are not fixed as being emotionally reactive and impulsive and constantly subject to being buffeted about by circumstances that we can learn to concentrate our mind, that we can learn to stabilize our emotions, and that we can turn our orientation from being self-oriented to being other-oriented. Um, and that these practices can turn our mind into, in a fundamental way. Not just, it helps that it can help us feel better about ourselves. It helps that it, it um, gives us coping tools for dealing with emotional reactivity and unexpected challenges that come up in life. But more than that, it, the, the, the purpose really of developing a spiritual life is to stabilize your mind so that at the moment of death, when your consciousness transitions from this body into whatever comes next, that 
the, uh, that we can guide our consciousness in a direction that we want it to go instead of just allowing our emotions and our impulsiveness to, to uh, fire us off in whichever direction happens to be the last karmic seed to, to go off in your mind in the dying process. So the Buddha is the Buddha is a historical person who achieved total enlightenment, which means omniscience, the um, eradication of mental afflictions and negative emotions, and and mental stability that allows the that that person to control the rebirth process. Um, but the Buddha isn't just a, um, an icon for us to venerate. Really, the reason we go for refuge to the Buddha is because um, he proved that it's possible to, to make these kinds of radical transformations. So we go for refuge not to a historical guy who lived 2,500 years ago in ancient India, but we're going for refuge to the idea that there is a model that we can emulate that would have a profound transformative impact on our consciousness and our lives and our future lives. We go for refuge to the Dharma. Uh, the Dharma is the, um, the techniques that we can apply. So that includes things like what we're going to study in this class tonight, um, learning specific, learning about how our mind works so that we can gain more facility in how to use our mind the way that we want to instead of being buffeted around by whatever our monkey mind drags us off into. Um, but it's not just this, it's, it's, the, it's this idea that there is a process, a perfectionizing process where we can continually do this work because we have guidelines, we have instruction manuals, we have breadcrumbs left behind by others who have done this before us that we can follow. So we don't have to figure it out on our own. There are, um, these are laboratory experiments that have been um, tested by others and then presented to us as experiments that we can do ourselves in our own, the laboratory of our own mind, our own body-mind our own karmic momentum, our own karmic field. And uh, we, can, we can test these things and see how they work and learn how they work. Uh, they, they aren't things that, we don't have faith in the Dharma in the sense that we believe that the Dharma is cool and that it's good for something. We have faith in the Dharma in the sense that it, we have sufficient conviction that it could work, that we're willing to try the experiments and see. And that's what the Dharma is. And going for refuge in the Dharma is saying, okay, I'm going to learn what the experiments are and I'm going to try them. And then we go for refuge in the Sangha. The Sangha means community. And so it means, on one level, it means people who come together to practice together. So really everybody in this room and everybody who comes to Sky Creek Dharma Center is part of a, a Sangha in this town where we have other people who want to practice too. And so we can get together and support each other by having a place to go, you know? There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, other types of sanghas, so to say, that are hanging out at the bar on a Thursday night, but we're the type of sangha that comes to a, a spiritual center to, to try to improve ourselves. So these things can provide a shelter because they're things that we can invest in that will provide us a return, not just an immediate return, but really a long-term, long-term on, on like a cosmic scope kind of return. And then we also set our motivation. And the core of a motivation is altruism. Um, it's true that practicing spiritual, spiritual things brings personal benefits, and that's great. You know, of course, we all want to be out of suffering. 
But what really gives juice to spiritual cultivation is um, shifting our orientation from self selfishness to otherness, self-orientation towards other orientation. Because as we cultivate spiritually, we are um, changing the way that our mind works. And we gradually become less impulsive, less emotional, less reactive. And that helps us break down the me versus them kind of mentality, you know, which is like, I think is probably as evident anywhere as on the freeway where, you know, if people behave in, on the freeway in ways that they would never behave if they actually were face to face. Like people do things on the freeway that they would never do at the gro in the grocery store line because you could say, excuse me, but in a car, people are just like, whatever, me first, you know? And, um, and I think kind of we all sort of have that sometimes where we're like we're trying to get to our destination and like these people are all in my way, you know? And that creates like that really constricted, closed off, like gnarly kind of internal feeling of like, I have to get my thing, you know? Um, and so as we gradually learn how to be other oriented, first of all, we can like lessen the grip on like, I'm mo the most important person in the universe and I need to get my thing and it doesn't matter if other people don't get their needs met. Um, but then we st that naturally leads us to being kinder people, so softer people, more sensitive, forgive people when they make mistakes that hurt us or when we see people doing things that are hurting themselves, that we are able to cultivate a sense of, of compassion and altruism and love, wanting them to, you know, when somebody cuts you off on the highway, you can either see them as a jerk face who's selfish and rude, or you can see them as somebody who urgently needs to get to where they're going and have a sense of love for them and say, well, I, I hope that they get where they're going. I hope they, they get their needs met. It's unfortunate that, that, that they're acting erratically and maybe dangerously, um, and that's a result of their, their own ignorance. And so we forgive them. We don't blame them for being ignorant. We forgive them for not knowing that their actions are harming others. Because as we learn that our, act, that our actions affect others, we naturally want to, to change. And this really gives us the expansive, inclusive scope that allows us to really grow spiritually. Because happiness, doesn't, isn't a, happiness isn't an isolated thing that happens within my own self. Like I can't be happiness and then look out on the world and see violence and homelessness and crime and be like, well, I'm okay over in my little imaginary bubble. Like real happiness is seeing that other people are getting their needs met, seeing that other people are <clears throat> safe and taken care of. And that's the bodhisattva ideal, the um, bodhicitta, cultivating a profound other orientation because ultimately other people's happiness is what's going to lead to my happiness. And selfishly or going after my own happiness leads me to do things, leads me to be willing to hurt other people in little ways in order to get my needs met. And that's not real happiness, you know, that's not real satisfaction. So that's, that's uh, how we traditionally set our motivation, um, is to remember that we're not just doing this to get our own selves out of suffering, but that we're really doing this because we want to live in a peaceful, happy, safe world where that's the case for everyone. And that gives us um, a strong motivation to practice, you know? Uh, I'm teaching uh, from a series of courses that are called the Dharma Essentials. These, this is a curriculum that was put together by one of my key teachers, Lama Marut, 
aka Brian Smith, PhD, retired professor emeritus of comparative religions who became a Buddhist monk for about 10 years. He's no longer a monk now, but while he was a monk, he of course taught Tibetan Buddhism extensively as well as Indian yoga uh, philosophy as well. Um, and he put this uh, curriculum together with the Asian Classics Institute and um, that's what I'm basing these classes on. Uh, Marut is an extraordinary teacher and um, I rely on him pretty heavily for putting together my classes here. Um, Dharma Essentials is meant to cover uh, the, the Dharma Essentials courses, there are about 15 courses, each one is about four classes. This is the fourth class, uh, course four, and um, it's really about getting to the core of what you need to know to practice a spiritual life. Um, the the Lam Rim is the genre that this is based on. It's a Tibetan, uh, a Tibetan pedagogical approach to teaching spirituality and it's like an assembly line where it's like you start here you do this next do this next do this next and eventually you'll come out on the other side as an enlightened being um, the the long rim is kind of the core of the um, Tibetan Geshe degree which is like a doctor of philosophy or a doctor of theology and that process takes about 20 years. In, in traditional Tibetan culture, kids would go into the monastery when they were children, and they would graduate in their 20s or so with a Geshe degree, and then they might go on to do postgraduate type work in, uh, in a tantric college. So we don't have a monastic university system. We don't have the option to go into uh, a monastery when we're little kids. Uh, we don't have 20, 25 years to spend full time studying this stuff. So the Dharma Essentials is like, okay, let's just cut to the chase. What are, what's like, what do you really need to know? And that's why it's called Dharma Essentials, because we're really just, we're really looking at what are the essentials here. Um, this course in particular is our first course on logic. Um, the last course was on meditation. All my previous courses are published online. So if you're curious and you like what you hear tonight, you can download them and listen to them on um, my website, mojohito.com. Uh, um, but this course is the first one where we're starting to get into logic, which is exploring how our mind works, how, how the process of perception works, and how do we know, how do we, how do we use our intellect to develop faith in things that we can't perceive with our, with our direct senses. And that's the purpose of logic in Buddhism. Um, this class, tonight's class, is specifically on perception, um, which in Sanskrit is pramana. Uh, Sanskrit is the ancient language of India. Most of the um, core Buddhist texts were written in Sanskrit. They were translated into Tibetan. Um, it's, it's been passed through different cultures over the generations. Um, so Sanskrit, the word is pramana. And um, pramana means a valid perception, meaning that what we're perceiving, we're perceiving accurately. And that we're, we're not mistaking wrong perceptions for accurate perceptions. We, we essentially, this is, uh, logic is one of the first things that they teach young kids when they go into the Buddhist universities. Because logic is the process Learning logic is the process of learning how your 
mind works so that we can use our mind the way that we want to. We, we essentially let our mind kind of lead us around in whichever direction it wants to go. And we respond to our impulses as if they were uh, a valid interpretation of reality. So one of the first things that we have to do is sort of get out of the emotional and assumptive mode of, of interpreting the world and start analyzing if what we're perceiving is accurate or not. And, and how, sh how sure can we be that the things that we're perceiving are accurate or not? Because we can't, always, we can't be 100% certain. So we want to know, like, how, how sure am I that this is a valid perception or not? Rather than just assuming that I'm having valid perceptions when maybe I'm not a lot of the time. The um, importance of logic in Buddhism is that it is the key to understanding emptiness. And emptiness in this case is a technical Buddhist, is technical Buddhist terminology. And emptiness is referring to how reality is really working. Um, emptiness is kind of a weird word for it until you kind of start to understand what emptiness is. Sometimes they use the word voidness. And what they're, the thing that's void is that we believe that the things that, it's void of being the thing that we believe it to be. We, when we perceive something, we assume that our perception is accurate. Emptiness says that there is a level of reality that we can't, that we're not aware of with our senses, that we're not able to perceive. Um, but we have to penetrate, we have to penetrate that subtler layer, that subtler layer of reality in order to achieve major states of, of transformation in our consciousness. So we develop logic in order to develop faith. But faith is not, in the West, typically when we have the word faith, we sort of always put the word blind before it, blind faith. And that's not what it means in, in Buddhism. Faith means developing confidence that this is possible. Developing confidence that something is possible. Um, one definition of faith that I heard that I really like is believing in things that we know to be true. So it's not blind faith, it's confidence. It's, um, it's belief in the sense that we have confidence in it, not belief in the sense that we believe in it because we can't validate it, so we have to have some blind, you know, devotion-based belief, but rather that we're cultivating uh, an ability to um, move ourselves in a direction because we, we know it's possible, not necessarily because we've seen it up front. Um, without faith, there's very little possibility for real spiritual progress. And, and the reason for this is because it's easy to just sort of casually disbelieve in things. Just sort of say, well, that's outside of my realm of experience, so I just, uh, you know, whatever, I don't believe it. I don't think, I don't think my, I don't think ethical action matters because I don't believe that there are repercussions to my actions. So I don't need to be ethical because I don't really believe that that, um, that what I put out into the world comes back to me as part of my experience. Or I don't think that 
you know, I, I sort of assume past and future lives don't exist. And so therefore, there's really no incentive to work on my spiritual life because, hey, when I die, the curtain comes down. That's all, folks. The, everything goes to black. I cease to exist. And therefore, there are, is no real repercussions to my actions. We can just sort of not... It's, it's easy to just not show up because uh, these, we can kind of dismiss these spiritual principles cavalierly. So we need to develop this, this faith based on an intellectual understanding of emptiness. So we're not going to go a lot into emptiness in this particular class. In the next couple of classes, we'll get into it a little bit more. It's like hardcore metaphysics. Um, and right now, we're just working with the process of perception. Um, but I, I do want to say that there is a state of deep meditation that's called the direct perception of emptiness. And in the direct, or the direct perception of ultimate reality. And in this state of meditation, the subject-object division collapses. And one sense of self, one's ego, identity, personality, dissolves. And one perceives oneself as the totality of all of existence. You shift the sense of I from this body and mind to this entire universe and everything that's inside of it. So this, and this state of meditation is really what our, kind of our goal as spiritual practitioners is to get to the state of meditation where we can perceive emptiness directly, perceive ultimate reality directly. And once we come out of that experience, once we've, that meditation session has ended and we return to our normal experience, we have a fundamental shift in consciousness. We now know without a doubt, we, don't, we no longer need faith to practice our spiritual practice. We, we now have a, a direct visceral perception, a direct visceral experience of how reality is really working, how the subject-object relationship works. Because the objects aren't self-existent. The objects exist independence on a perceiver. There is no perceiver without the object that's being perceived, and there is no there is no, there's no perceiver without the object, and there's no object without the perceiver. They come into existence together. And so we're, the reason we study logic and the reason we study perception is because we are working to develop an intellectual understanding of how this is happening, how the subject-object relationship is coming into existence co-emergently, because that's what gives us the real confidence and stability in our meditation to get deep enough to achieve this, the direct perception of emptiness directly, the direct perception of ultimate reality directly. So that's why logic is important. Um, we, need to, we, we seriously need to develop the faith and the confidence that our mode of being can be changed so, so that we can go on and actually change it. A couple of uh, testimonials here. Um, Gyaltsev J was the, one of the two um, key disciples of Jaitsongkapa. This is some historical Buddhist history for you. Jaitsongkapa um, lived from 1357 to 1419. He is the founder of the Gelukpa um, lineage in Tibetan Buddhism. He was the founder of the lineage of the Dalai Lamas. So today we're on the 14th Dalai Lama. Um, Jaitsongkapa was the teacher of the first Dalai Lama. 
Um, so he had a, ma a massive impact on Tibetan Buddhism, and as Tibetan Buddhism has come out into the world, it's one of the most well-articulated modes of Buddhist practice. So Jaitsong Kappa is like, you know, he's like the rock star, he's like one of the rock stars of the Buddhist world. And um, an extraordinary scholar, an extraordinary meditator, and he had two main students. And one of his students is named Gyaltsebje, and Gyaltsebje said that the kindest thing that his teacher ever did for him was to teach him logic. Because with logic, he then had the tools to analyze and interpret any other teaching that came to him, any other experience that came to him. He had a system for evaluating its validity. And then Buddha himself, Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha, this is why Buddha said logic is important. He says, this is really interesting, I or someone like myself, meaning another enlightened being, can judge a person, but no normal person should judge another, for he will fall. What he's saying is, without being able to see the real condition, you should never say something like, this person has, has such and such faults, this person hasn't the least good quality, or he has some good qualities, but not many. So uh, what does our tendency to judge other people have to do with logic? Why would Buddha say, this is why you need to learn logic. This is why you need to develop pramana, valid, valid perception. The reason is that we don't really know what's going on inside another person's mind. We, we can't know what's going on inside another person's mind. I mean, if you're already a Buddha, then you're obviously exempted from this statement. Um, but those of us who are not Buddhas, um, we don't have omniscience. We don't have any yogic cities that allow us to hear other people's thoughts. And so we really don't know who they are as a being. We don't really know who they are in their core. So we, on the one hand, we must judge actions. We have to be able to say, this is part of ethics, right? Part, we have to be able to say, this is, this is correct behavior, this is correct conduct, this is incorrect behavior, this is incorrect conduct, and be able to respond accordingly. But if somebody does something that we see as wrong or inappropriate, we then tend to jump to the conclusion and use that as evidence that they're a certain kind of person. They lied to me, therefore they are, a, they are a deceptive person, you know? <clears throat> but we really don't know what's going on inside another's mind. And this is what, this is, what is meant by the, when Buddha says, I or someone like myself can judge a person. Meaning, with omniscience, with te telepathy, with these yogic siddhis, enlightened beings can see what another being really is. But they're, of course, not looking at you as an individual. They're looking at you over this... this infinite arc of, of rebirths, you know? And so he's pointing it very specifically to the fact that we have to acknowledge what we do know and what, what we can know and what we cannot know. And, and not make judgments about things that are unknowable, that are inherently unknowable. And in his example is judging another person. So 
Buddha says the reason to learn logic, the reason to learn valid perception, is so that we are better able to manage our minds and we don't have these mental afflictions, these, um, these disturbed states of mind in which we believe things that we can't know. There are... Um, The, it, the, the point is to learn the limitations of our knowledge so that we're not jumping to conclusions. That seems pretty reasonable, actually. And he uses the example of judging another person because he's kind of, Buddha's kind of saying, like, you guys are all judging each other all the time, and it's okay to judge actions, but you really need to, you need to know that you don't know. And that's actually, that makes sense, you know? It's not like, you don't really have to have, like, religious faith in a doctrine to be like, oh, it's actually pretty reasonable. Um, and that's the cool thing about Buddhism. There's so much stuff in Buddhism. There's so many different things to learn, different styles and approaches and meditations. But really, when you get down to it, it's all super pragmatic. And it's all about, like, you, you, have, to, you have to do it for yourself. You, it's, not, it's not something that you have faith in and that you believe in. It's something that you have faith in that you practice. So... The reason we can't judge others based on their behaviors is because there are, there, are two, there are two assumptions, there are two assertions about who that person is, and we can't validate either one of them. There's no way to prove to ourselves either one. The first is that they are a schmuck, and they are, you know, they're an unethical person who just does whatever they want or whatever our story is, you know what I mean? That they're an ordinary person like me who's basically being yanked around by their emotions and their impulses and their reactivity. The other is that they are a Buddha in disguise sent here to teach me something. I can't perceive them as a Buddha because I don't, I don't have sufficient karmic momentum to be able to identify a Buddha if one, like if a Buddha came through the door, we don't necessarily have the karma to see them as a being with like light rays emanating from their pores, which is one of the ways that they describe Buddhas, you know, or having bodies that look substantial but are like physically immaterial. And we wouldn't necessarily be able to perceive that because you have to have extremely evolved karma to be able to perceive a being like that, um, to perceive a being like that in that way. But Buddhas are nonetheless coming to us in myriad forms. Myriad? Myriad? Myriad. Myriad. Um, thank you. Buddhas are, in fact, coming to us in myriad forms um, in order to teach us. That's what Buddhas do, is they emanate bodies into other people's universes and teach them. Even if that being can't necessarily perceive that person as a Buddha. So... Here, this is, the, this is the thought experiment for how can we judge another person? Do we assume that they're an ordinary person and that, um, that, that because they did something jerky to me that I therefore have the justification to judge them as a schmuck? Or another unvalidatable assertion is this is a teacher who's taking the form of somebody provoking me in order to teach me something specific. And my job here is to look for the teaching. And suddenly, the guy who cuts you off in traffic stops being, uh, stops being a jerk who is annoying you and becomes a Buddha who is teaching you patience. 
And so when they honk, when they cut you off and then they honk the horn and flip you off to like, to add insult to injury and you like start to feel your blood boil, which is never a good thing when you're operating a 3000 pound machine hurtling at 70 miles an hour. Um, it's an opportunity to be, oh, I am getting, I, I am being of given a very visceral opportunity to experience my anger, notice it, and instead apply the antidote of patience. We can't know if that, if that guy is a redneck or if he's a Buddhist, a Buddha. We don't know. So, how do you decide? Well, first of all, which one's cooler? Which one makes life more interesting? Which one is going to help you become a better person faster? And so this is, this is the key that Buddha is, is handing us by saying, you can't, you can't judge another person. The key that he's handing us is, Set aside what you don't know and apply the cooler, more helpful worldview to, to the situation. So there is a handout, and, um, which you all have. It's also on the website you can download. And um, in the handout are um, some scriptural sources. Um, the reason we provide this is to sort of give some, some social proof that what I'm talking about here isn't something that I made up, um, that this is a lineage of teachings, that this is a system that people have put into practice and they found it useful and they've passed it on to the next generation and so on. So um, the, the texts that we're referring to here are... Um, the most recent, most recent, the most recent one is um, by an author named Geshe Wangchuk, who's a contemporary Tibetan Lama, and his text is called The Jewel of True Thought, which is a commentary on a previous text by Dhar Dharmakirti, who lived around 630 AD, and his text was called Commentary on Valid Perception, which itself was, a was an exposition on a previous text by Dignaga, who lived around 440 AD, who wrote a text called Compendium on Valid Perception. So Dignaga wrote a text called Compendium on Valid Perception, Dharmakirti, around 440. Dharmakirti wrote an uh, exposition on that text around 630, and then Geshe Wangchuk wrote uh, a further exposition on that in the, modern, in the modern day. So Buddhism is like this. It's kind of um, iterative, you know? People are taking an older version of a text and trying to communicate it in a, a way that is approachable to their modern audience, to their contemporary audience. I mean, that's what I'm doing here, you know? It's like wisdom building on prior wisdom. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, um, that's the evolutionary process of the, of the lineage. So... Um, that I just that I just want to mention that so that uh, you know it's it's important for me when I'm teaching these kinds of things to establish the scriptural authority, um, so that you know that I'm not just some guy who walked in off the street and made this stuff up five minutes ago. Okay. So then we get to the kind of nitty gritty reality and valid perceptions. How do we know what we know? We don't we don't automatically think clearly. Thinking clearly is a skill to be cultivated. So that's why we get into this. That's what we're doing here. So there are three levels 
of reality. Evident, hidden, and deeply hidden. Now, uh, evident reality are things that we perceive with our six senses. In Buddhism, they, they consider consciousness to be, the, consciousness, the, the, the capacity for perception to be a sense in and of itself. So you have taste, smell, sight, touch, hearing, and then consciousness. So things that we perceive with our six senses. Um, helpful to have a prop. When I hold up this object, we all know that this is a pen. We don't, we don't mistake it for um, a car key or uh, banana. a banana, right? We know it's a pen. It functions as a pen. There's no real question about it. I was actually going to say, we all know that this isn't a flashlight, but actually this is a flashlight and a pen in a single object. So I was going to say, we all know it's not a flashlight. Oh, oh, actually, it is a flashlight. <laughs> Don't judge me. <laughs> uh, so valid perception almost <laughs> failed me there. Um, so that's evident reality. Um, things that we can perceive. But... Um, but a valid, so, so when we're talking on this level, we would say that we almost always are having valid perceptions. We almost always are accurately perceiving reality uh, on this level, on the evident level. What, like examples of exceptions to when we have an invalid perception on the evident level is when a mouse runs in front of your car and you hit the brakes, and it's, but it was actually a leaf. The mouse was an invalid perception. We, we, we received the sense data, but we applied the wrong mental object to the sense data. Um, or, I don't know, we don't, have a lot of, we don't have a lot of problems with snakes, I guess, but you know, in some parts of the world, like if you see there are po poisonous snakes, and if you see a coiled rope, you might immediately see, you might see a snake. And then it only takes a moment and you say, oh no, it's just a rope, it wasn't a snake. So the snake was an invalid perception. But for the most part, we perceive things validly. And how do we know? Because they function, right? It functions as a pen. It functions as a water bottle. It functions as a car. You know, It's not like we, we get into a cardboard box thinking that it's a car, and then we realize, oh, this isn't a car. It doesn't function as a car. Like We're mostly perceiving things correctly. So then the, the next level, um, the definition... Um, Oh, okay. The next level is hidden reality. Hidden reality are things that we can't perceive with our senses, but we know to but we know to exist. So, um, a good example of this for us is that we all pretty much know how cells work. We know what cells are. You don't see cell when you're looking at your hand. You don't. You don't. You can't see the cells. But we all have enough education that we, um, we know that cells exist. We know that there's a microbial world that we can't see. But we know it. It's hidden from us, but we can still perceive it in a certain way, which I'll get into the, the types of perception. Um, another thing that is hidden, but that we, can, but that we know exists, 
is the processes of change. Again, looking at the pen, uh, is this pen a changing thing? It doesn't look like it's changing. It looks like it's a solid object that's right here. And like, I can kind of think eventually the batteries on the flashlight will run out and then it will cease to be a flashlight or the ink will run out and it will cease to be a pen. But we know from quantum mechanics that this thing is actually changing so quickly that you can't really say that there's a thing here. It's changing quadrillions of times a second. It's vibrating. It basically exists as a, as a vibration, you know? Like, atoms are mostly empty space. They're not like a physical thing. They're, they're mostly like a state of... Atoms themselves almost exist as a state of continual change, and then the atoms are what's making up this object. So even though I can hold this object and knock it on the table, and it sure seems like a, 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 a thing to me, it actually is a process. Think of your own body. Is your body changing? Your body is, there are, there's quadrillion things that happening in your body every second that you're not, you don't have any cognitive awareness of. You don't have any mental awareness of. You don't have any real control over it. But we know it's ha happening. And so that's an example of hidden reality. The, the, um, in Buddhist rhetoric and Buddhist philosophy, the main thing in, in hidden reality is emptiness. Emptiness is the, the lack of self-existence to the thing that we assume is in the thing. Like we assume that this is a pen. But as we just an, an analyzed, it's actually a process. It's more like a, it's more like a vibrational process than it is like an object if you could like penetrate into the nature of the thing, you know? It's a continual process of change, which happens to appear to me to be a pen. It functions as a pen, on the evident reality it's fine, but on the hidden reality, we know that this thing is, is uh, we can, we this is why we have to use logic, because we need to interpret that this isn't a thing. That the penness is a concept that I apply to a process. Continuous change. And, and so emptiness is the, the only inherent characteristic of phenomena is that they're continually changing. So we would like to say that there are all kinds of inherent characteristics, right? What makes this a pen is that I can hold it and I can write with it. But actually emptiness says what makes this a pen is that I perceive it as a pen. And if we showed it to a different kind of a being, they might not necessarily see it as a pen. You don't see this as a dog toy, but if I showed it as a, to a dog, they would not see it as a pen. In the dog's reality, there is no penness here. If the pen was inherently a pen, if the pen had the inherent characteristic of being a pen, if I showed it to a dog, the dog would write with it. Because it would be a pen. It would be a pen, you know? Big pen. But it's not a pen. It's a pen based on my perception of it as a pen. And in some, at some point, maybe it'll take a million years after I die, this thing will dissolve into its molecular components, and it won't, be, it won't look anything like a pen. And so these are examples pointing to the emptiness of the pen. That the penness is a quality of perception, not a quality of the pen. And that's how it is for everything, that it's our perception forced by karma, forced by our habits and our proclivities and our unconscious motivations that we're not always aware of, that causes us to see the world the way that we see it. 
The world isn't the way that we see it. The world is the, we believe that we're seeing the world the, the way that it is, but that's not the way that it is because everybody sees the world differently. So emptiness, um, the, the lack of pen, the lack of the pen to the pen, the fact that this physical object is actually in a state of continual change are hidden things that I can't perceive with my senses, but I can, but I can validly perceive even though I don't perceive it with my senses. You follow? I hope so. Then the, um, the third level of reality is called deeply hidden. And deeply hidden, uh, according to Buddhist philosophy, are things that only Buddhas can perceive. Things that um, an intellect like ours is not capable of perceiving. And the example that they always use in Buddhism is um, the subtle workings of karma. Um, karma means causality. Karma means the um, um, cause and effect. It means that everything that happens had a cause, and everything that happens is the cause of a future effect. That, um, that cause and effect exists. I mean, it's not really a hard sell. So like that's, when they say subtle workings of karma, the gross workings of karma are things like, I get an education so that I can get a job, so that I can make money, so that I can buy a car, and that I can afford the gas to put in the gas tank so that I can drive to the Dharma Center on Thursday night. Like that's cause and effect, right? Nobody's gonna dispute that. I'm hungry, I eat food, I no longer feel hungry. It's very simple. Like we wouldn't start college funds for our kids if we didn't think that the education would help them further down the road, right? We all believe in cause and effect. Um, and that's, that's like the gross level of karma. And then a subtler layer of karma is that our intentions also affect causality. And so malicious intent will lead to bad things happening to me. If I harm another being's body, that will lead to harm coming to my body. According to this, the cause of death is killing, having killed in the past, which, you know, we can try hard to not kill beings, but like if you drove, if we drive a car on the freeway, like we kill a whole bunch of beings on our windshield. And that basically means, you know, it's like getting to my destination is more important than those beings' lives. It's not malicious, I'm not evil, I'm not trying to kill anybody, but the fact that I'm willing to kind of sit aside while other beings suffer because of my actions is what leads to me having physical pain in the future, is what leads to sickness, is what leads to, to getting old and dying. According to, this is according to Buddhist causality, karma. But then the subtler workings of karma are like what karmic seed is ripening to give the rug this color and texture? You know, why, are the, why is this room shaped the way that it is? Why are the wood beams converging in that way? Everything is part of karma. Everything is in the matrix of causality. Every little freaking detail is in the matrix of causality. But it's, it's way too hidden, right? Like, I, I mean, I can kind of figure out like, oh, yeah, that person, I, like, I just got lied to and deceived. That really sucks. I know, I can, I can use my logic to say, according to the laws of karma, that the reason I'm being lied to now is because I deceived other people in the past. But then like, 
Why is the rug the way that it is? Why is the wood grain the way that it is? Who knows? Well, Buddha knows, because Buddhas have omniscience. Buddhas understand the subtle workings of karma. So anyway, we need to, we need to be aware if, if what, we're think, what, we're, what we're perceiving, when we're, when we're using logic to analyze our valid perception, that we, are, that we know if we're looking at something that's evident, hidden, or deeply hidden. The definition of a valid perception, um, it's, which is in the reading, although it's this arcane kind of writing, it's a little, a little dense. But the gist of it is, correct perception is a state of mind unerring. Fresh, unerring, and um, able to perform a function, which is like more of this kind of a little bit dry Buddhist vernacular. But um, essentially, unerring means that I'm perceiving the thing correctly. Right, I, I identify that it's a leaf blowing across a, ro a road and not a mouse. That the perception that I'm having is, is essentially correct. That I'm not mistaken. I'm not hallucinating, for example. I'm not, um, I'm not on some kind of drug that causes my mind to do weird things and I perceive, and I perceive, I see things that aren't physically there. You know, the, that would be an erring, that would be an invalid perception because I'm under some kind of influence. Or another example would be like the cardboard, hopping in a cardboard box and expecting to be able to drive to the store in it. You know what I mean? It's like, um, does the thing function? If you're trying to use a chopstick as a pen, then you're having an invalid perception of the chopstick because it looks similar to a pen or a pencil, let's say. It looks similar to a pencil, but it doesn't function as a pencil. So if I, think of, if I see a chopstick and think it's a pencil, I'm having an, uh, an, an aired perception of it because I am misperceiving it, you know? And then the other <clears throat> characteristic of a valid perception is that it's fresh. Fresh means that you are, that you're actually perceiving it. So what, it, what is not a fresh perception? Anything in your memory. Because if you're, if you're remembering something, you're not having a fresh perception of the object, you're remembering the memory of the object. And each time you remember the object, your memory shifts a little bit. And so a, a memory is, by definition, not a valid perception. And so if, you know, I mean, who hasn't been in an argument with somebody and you have like a totally, like a different version of like what actually happened? You said this and I said this. No, I didn't say that. I said this and you must have heard something different than I said and you end up going back and forth about like what actually happened because both people have an invalid perception of what actually happened because it's not fresh. It's not happening now. You're not actually perceiving it. So when I'm holding the pen in my hand, I'm having a valid, I'm having a fresh perception of the pen, but if I am not looking at the pen, I'm trying to remember exactly what the color of blue was, I'm, ha I'm not having a fresh perception. So there are two or three types of valid perception that are able to perceive different aspects of phenomena. Uh, the, um, the first in Sanskrit is called pratyaksha, which, which more or less means right before your eyes. Um, aksh 
is uh, um, prati aksh are the two roots, and aksh means to look or see in the Sanskrit verbal root, and aksh comes into uh, English as like ocular, for example. <coughs> so if you're interested in linguistics, you can often find cool little clues in Sanskrit because our modern English language is descended from Sanskrit. So it means literally right before your eyes what you can, what you can perceive. So this type of valid perception, pratyaksha, uh, is capable of perceiving evident reality. What our senses are telling us. Um, the next level is called anumana. And anumana means deductive or inferential reasoning. Um, where we're not able to perceive it with our senses, but we still can accurately perceive the, the facts. So like, for example, everybody look at the pen that I'm holding. You are having a pratyaksha, valid, uh, a valid perception with your own eyes of evident reality. But what if I do this? Where, uh, uh, am, I holding, am I holding a pen in my hand? Yes, you're having a pratyaksha. Am I holding the pen in my hand? You're having an anumana. Um, you didn't hear it hit the floor, so you don't think I dropped it. Um, I, I didn't do like a magic trick where I like made it disappear. Uh, I'm not doing a magic show, so you don't um, assume I'm about to do a magic trick. You don't think I'm trying to deceive you. But your, your uh, inferential reasoning, your infinite inferential logic, correctly tells you that I'm holding a pen in my hand. Because even though you can't see it, you can't see through my body, you can't, I'm not transparent, so you can't see with your own senses that I'm still holding the pen, but you are able to correctly perceive it. Now, with both of these, you could be wrong. I could have tucked the pen into my, into my belt, and I'm not holding it in my hand, but maybe you think I still am. You didn't hear it hit the ground, or I hid it somehow, you know? Um, and that's just like with the, the leaf blowing in front of the car and perceiving it as a, as a mouse. So there... Our perceptions are not infallible, but we can have a fair degree of confidence in that what we're perceiving is, is valid. Um, so, so both pratyaksha and anumana are both considered valid forms of perception. You could be wrong, but they're generally considered valid. Now, the, the, the third is... Um, I, this is considered, it's taught as two because the third one is considered an aspect of deductive or inferential reasoning, but I, I kind of feel like they're three different, they're kind of three different ones. Um, the third one is agama, that's Sanskrit again, agama, and agama means authority. And so traditionally this would mean believing your guru, you know, taking your guru's advice seriously because you have used pratyaksha and anumana to infer that they have special knowledge or special capabilities that you could learn from them. And so when your teacher says, you know, gives you an assertion like all the, you know, all of the suffering in your life comes from you having harmed others in the past, you can take that on, on Agama, um, but hopefully you're willing to, to test it, you know, and see if it, if it makes sense to you. Um, but that's kind of a, that's a little bit of a tough sell for us in the West because we don't, necessarily have like a lot of examples of spiritual authority figures that we trust. 
we kind of have a lot of spiritual authority figures that we don't trust. We've seen a lot of cash hoarding and womanizing and power mongering in, in spiritual communities, kind of to a frightening degree. And so we don't necessarily have faith in Agama in the sense that we believe what our spiritual believe what spiritual teachers are telling us. But we do but we can understand Agama nonetheless because we have Agama in the form of scientific experts, legal experts, medical experts, like when the doctor tells you that you have cancer, you you have you you valid you're, you're having a valid perception based on agama. You're if you're you're not necessarily a, a cancer doctor. You didn't look at the cancer cells under the microscope yourself, but you but this person is a is a trustworthy authority. You know, um, expert witnesses in trials. You know, like a person can go to jail. A person go, could go to the death penalty based on agama. You know, somebody who. Uh, somebody who has authority could say that was your fingerprint on the gun. That was his fingerprint on the gun and therefore to the electric chair or whatever they do. And so Agama is very powerful. Like we have, we, we definitely have faith in Agama. We definitely have faith in um, things we can't perceive directly, but we trust other people when they tell us. So... Um, Ideally, we do want to have a, a spiritual teacher who we trust. That's uh, a long, that's a tough process in this, in this culture, and it takes a long time to, to find people and test them and, and decide if you trust them or not. But ideally, we could find somebody who has really put these teachings into practice and who has made these kinds of major transformations to their consciousness that I'm asserting to you is possible, but I can't, I can't prove it to you. I can't, I can't even tell you that I'm, I'm totally confident, you know, I, it's unknowable from my point of view, but I have enough faith in it that I'm willing to put these things into practice. I'm willing to study it hard and, and deeply um, to try to understand it better. But um, when you meet somebody who, who really has gone through major shifts in their consciousness, who has gone through major transformation, ideally that person could tell you what you need to do in order to grow spiritually. Um, fortunately, we have a lot of things written down. We have the Lam Rim, and uh, so there's a lot that we can do on our own. Um, but that traditionally would be what Agama is referring to, is taking, taking your guru's word for it. So um, one thing that I just want to close with, which sort of builds on the Agama thing, is what Master Dignaga, how Master Dignaga back in 440-ish um, started his text on logic. So this guy is writing a book called Compendium on Valid Perception, and this is how he starts it. I bow down to the one who turned correct, who helps all beings, the teacher, the one who went to bliss and our protector. And now, out of love for those mistaken in their logic, I shall explain the right way to establish correct perception. This is a traditional way of starting a, a, a Buddhist uh, text when somebody's writing it. The first thing that they do is they, um, they pay respect to the Buddha and or their teacher. And what they're doing, first of all, is saying, um, this is based on the authority of someone who resolved all of their mental afflictions and achieved omniscience and total, uh, totally valid perception 
on even the super subtle levels, the deeply hidden levels. And then he, he the second paragraph is his commitment to uh, conveying the information correctly. And what he's uh, doing with these two paragraphs is agama, basically. He is um, establishing the Buddha as the authority, uh, as the... Um, as the definitive authoritative source for this information. Because a Buddha is a person who has completely removed mental affliction obstacles, who has completely removed obscurations from their mind. And they're able to, and they've developed omniscience. And they uh, then are able to perceive reality directly. And that's what we're trying to achieve ourselves. So that's why it's interesting and, and relevant that uh, Dignaga started his text by um, referring to the Buddha, because he wants us to remember that um, we're trying to achieve that state, Buddhahood, for ourselves. So to, um, th this wraps up the class. And to close, um, traditionally in um, Buddhist teachings, we um, dedicate the merit. We dedicate the efforts that we've made here. And again, this is the, perp the main purpose of this is to turn our mind away from self-centeredness to other-centeredness and to recollect, to recall that the, um, the teachings that we, that, that learning these kinds of things and studying them and practicing them is um, not just of immediate personal benefit, but it really benefits all mankind. Because everybody who's trying to become a better person, everyone who's trying to become a kinder, gentler, more compassionate, more loving person is improving the quality of the world overall, you know? Ideally, we want everyone to be free from suffering and to have happiness. But um, the only way that really we can do that is to work on cultivating ourselves, to build our own compassion, our own love, our own perseverance and diligence, our willingness to work hard for the benefit of others. And we can do that in a symbolic way at the conclusion of a Buddhist teaching or a meditation by um, imagining that the, the effort that we've made here has some kind of material substance and that we can spread that, that, that around so that everybody gets some, you know? And it's, again, it's like a thought experiment, but it's a way of softening the heart and softening the mind and, and developing some compassion and generosity and love. So just take a moment and... and uh, Think altruistic thoughts and, you know, recall that we can, that every person that we help, it makes an impact. And everything that we can do, every little thing we can do to improve the world has an impact. Not just the impact on, on the person that we're helping, but it improves our, uh, it improves our karmic momentum. It turns our mind in the right direction. And that's why we're doing this. And it's important to remember that it benefits everyone.